Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right, let me tell you what I have in mind. A little tiny car pulls up outside the venue and... Madam President, our advanced team is very good at its job. Why don't you let us handle the optics of this presidential visit? Let's see. Why not? Hmm. Oh, I know, because I'm freaking president. Now, do we have to start over? A little tiny car pulls up outside the venue. And clowns get out, like 20 clowns, and then I get out, and people are laughing, and they're clapping. Hire some people to laugh and clap. I can already see a problem, Madam President. But it's not just me. I've got this huge white wolf, like Jon Snow on Game of Thrones. I don't think a wolf is even legal to have in D.C. Then how about a raccoon with a machine gun, like in Guardians of the Galaxy? God, I love that movie. I can look into it. And then, this is the best part... Standing on the curve to greet me is the cast of the Broadway musical Hamilton. Everybody loves them, and they salute me with one of the great songs from the musical, like Stay Alive. Ah, 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 staying alive, staying alive. Ah. Madam President, that's not from... I think you've got it mixed up with a different song. You work out the details. I've given you the big picture. But, Madam President, you're just going to your daughter's school for a parent-teacher conference. This... This seems a bit much. I hate a man who thinks small. I'm going to fire you, but I want the optics to be great when I do. Jot down some notes for your firing ceremony. Let's do this right. And here's a show about political stagecraft. And now he claims he told Dukakis to stride into a bank, not ride in a tank. Colin McEnroe. There's a lot of background noise. That's really what I said. It's a stride into a bank, and he just heard it wrong. So we are going to talk about uh, optics. We're going to talk about stagecraft. We're going to talk about the work of advanced teams in campaigns and during governance. Anytime you see cameras pointed at a politician or an elected official, and that politician or elected official has had any advance warning that the cameras were going to be pointed. A lot of things have happened first. A lot of work has gone in, even at the level of lighting, decoration, choreography. Who's going to be standing next to the president or governor when he signs that bill? Uh, who's who's going to be up on stage uh, around the candidate when she makes her victory speech? Uh, everything like that is, for the most part, thought through pretty carefully by a lot of different people. Uh, we're going to talk about that and, and how things like that Decisions like that, if they are well made in advance and well planned for, can in fact tip a campaign uh, in a good direction. And of course, the opposite can be true as well. If you mishear me when I say stride into a bank and you ride in a tank, uh, that can in fact redound to your discredit. So uh, who's going to talk about this with us? Josh King, a former White House director of production for presidential events and author of most recently Off Script, an advanced man's guide to White House stagecraft, campaign spectacle and political suicide. Joining us in studio, Patty McQueen, communication strategist, founder of Patty McQueen Communication. Communication Strategies. No, I've got it now. It's all in the notes. Uh, She worked in the 1992 and 1996 presidential campaigns and inaugurations and as a consultant on the 2000 presidential campaign. Joining us from uh, the road uh, is Ed Emerson, a Democratic political strategist and lead advance man for Hillary for America. So we have people who've done this in the past and people who are doing this uh, in the present. Uh, We've got Josh's book as our er text for all all of this. So, um, Josh King, I'm going to begin with you. First of all, Welcome to the show, and good to have your voice bouncing around Connecticut, where you used to live. 
Thanks, Colin. That uh, that dialogue that you read is very much true to life, as Ed will confirm. <laughs> well, that's you know actually one thing that Frank Rich says about uh, the TV show Veep uh, is that when they go to Washington after they've you know, filmed a few seasons of Veep, basically everybody in Washington says, "How did you know?" You know, it's like you have surveillance on us or something. People stride forward and and claim to be the basis for Jonah, the most uh, execrable character on on Veep. So, uh, yeah, it's hard to make up stuff that's that's all that different. Look, before we delve into the past with all three of you, let's kind of look at the present for a second because it's what people are thinking about. So, Josh, you know, maybe the indelible, and you might argue with this, but maybe the indelible piece of quote-unquote advanced work or stagecraft from this campaign so far is the very first thing that Donald Trump did, which is ascend from the metaphorical clouds on an escalator coming down to earth to grace us mortals with his presence and his declaration that he'll uh, run for president. It's probably something he thought up himself as opposed to having a professional like you do it because that's the way he does everything. He mentions it all the time in his speeches. Still, you'd think he did it yesterday, yesterday the way he talks about it. I'm assuming you you think that in its own crude way, it actually has worked pretty well for him. Well, if Donald is anywhere near Connecticut Public Radio and listening to the show, he would revel in the fact that I will say that in 1989, when Time Magazine came to shoot a cover shot of Donald Trump, they did it right at the base of that escalator. And so Donald has been imagining using that venue as a place to (laughs) advance his political ambitions for nigh on 30 years, Colin. And, and, and uh, you know, from his point of view, I mean, it wouldn't have worked all that well with a lot of candidates. But the, the notion of kind of coming down from the heavens kind of fits his ego in his own most, you know, the, his, his style, his strutting style, which is just on the verge of being self-mocking, uh, that notion that he, here I'm coming down to you to lend you my assistance. Exactly. He descended to one of Neil Young's uh, rock standards, uh, Young was supporting Bernie Sanders, is supporting Bernie Sanders at the time, and uh, w- complained to Donald Trump that he would use one of uh, one of Neil's songs. Then Trump, in classic fashion, tweets out a picture of Young in Trump's office just from a few months earlier trying to get money from Mr. Trump to support or to finance one of uh, Young's own music uh, projects. So Trump Trump's event at Trump Tower really just came a couple weeks after Hillary Clinton's unveiling at Roosevelt Island. And you didn't think anyone could top Secretary Clinton as she got 5,000 people out there on that sunny Saturday in New York. But here comes Donald down this escalator with a crowd. I think that they were some of them from Actors' Equity getting a little extra money to show up. But it's perfect. Him and Melania down the escalator saying he's going to make America great again. And that's at the, about the same time that he unveiled the, the red hat that has become his signature. And, of course, so few people took him seriously back then. But here we are in April, uh, April 2016, almost a year later. People are taking him very seriously, Colin. Uh, before we go to Ed, so, Patty, I know that you um, uh, that you think probably I've just played into Trump's hands, that one of his campaign narratives is he's all about instinct, he's self-directed, he's not focus grouping stuff that he's doing. Uh, it's just all straight from the gut, uh, including a decision like that one. You're not so sure, right? See, well, I mean, I think I think they are. I have this fantasy that they are focus grouping this thing. But what they're doing, rather than filter any of it, and 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 come up with any constructive messages is, it, is that they're just repeating it. So they, he, you know, hey, that would be cool. And so he does it. Uh, he, somebody says something and he just repeats it. That's, 
it, I just don't believe he's that good at coming up with messages that resonate. So I think they're coming from somewhere. Mm-hmm. I just don't think they're doing it very constructively. You know, uh, Ed Emerson, uh, we're talking about uh, Hillary Clinton's kickoff. We're talking about Trump's kickoff. A lot of this is about what somebody in your business will call getting the shot right. And, and it's a tough thing, too, because you can control the stagecraft, but the other people are, are pointing the cameras. You want them to point the cameras uh, at exactly the right thing uh, with exactly kind of the right level of, uh, uh, of inclusion of stuff. All around it. So, so I've got it in my notes. I ask Ed to, to tell us about getting the shot right in Vegas. I'm going to let you take it take it from there. <laughs> oh, thanks for yeah, thanks for bringing that one up. That was a uh, a very nice rally. I mean, you can't uh, um, you can't generate uh, computer graphics uh, ten thousand people. So we had a nice rally in Las Vegas at the uh, uh, county building there. And at uh, right near the very end, before the president uh, was to make his arrival, uh, someone said we should have a railing across the back of the uh, main stage. And the staging people and the Secret Service and everyone, we had a big meeting and decided we should put a railing across, which uh, on the tight shot, uh, the people behind uh, the president of the United States miraculously parted like the, the, uh, the sea, and there was a pipe uh, going in. Bill Clinton's one ear and coming out the other <laughs> ear. <laughs> so uh, you work hard, you get lots of people, uh, you try uh, everything you can to uh, make, especially the tight shot, because that's really what's going to end up on the network news. I mean, my standard in uh, uh, learned a lot from Josh over the years is uh, what does the TV shot look like with the sound off? Mm-hmm. You know, if you can turn the sound off and, figure out who, what, where, when, and why uh, an event is going on with your principal in it, uh, you've done a pretty good job. And so, Patty, sometimes that's just almost like using human beings uh, as ornamentation. Uh, I was uh, in the hall most recently when Luke Bronin was about to declare victory uh, on election night uh, or maybe primary night, which is the same thing anyway. But um, uh, whatever, I guess it probably was primary night. So uh, I'm watching. I'm standing there in the Polish national home of Hartford where these things happen. And nothing could begin until they had exactly the right configuration of people on stage. And it was like, nope, nope, not quite yet. No, got to get that. You, you over there. You you know, I mean, it was so that when the cameras started rolling, you had exactly the right people represented in exactly the way that Ed's talking about. What is the camera going to see? If you turn the sound off, what message is being sent about Luke Bronin and the people who support him? Well, I think I mean, look at it. It's all about it's all about that picture, that picture that's going to be on the front of the Hartford Current, the picture on the on the nightly news. And and are you know, is it the, is it the right balance of faces? Is it enough women? Is it enough men? Is it enough people of color? Uh, you know, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, at the Capitol the other day, they tried to do a an availability that they, for whatever reason, jammed into a corner at the Capitol that they thought would get them the picture that they wanted. Mm. And what they ended up doing is is uh, is doing it in such a way that the cameras actually couldn't get in there to get it. Mm-hmm. Like, we got our guys in the right place and the picture's good, except we can't get a camera in there to get the... <laughs> the actual shot. So it doesn't always work. A chain is only as good as its weakest link. All right. So, Josh, let's go back into history. You spend uh, quite a bit of time in your book on the Dukakis campaign in 1988. Uh, one would could say that many things went wrong in the Dukakis campaign. Uh, and also uh, there, there were things that inevitably were going to, if not go wrong, at least be corrected. George H.W. Uh, Bush 
was kind of coming out of his time as vice president with this weird thing attached to him that was called the wimp factor. It was on the cover of Newsweek. You know, can George Bush overcome the wimp factor? I mean, George Bush was this great big hulking guy who had been a fighter pilot and stuff. Michael Dukakis was this little tiny five foot eight man. There were going to be some problems in this campaign. And and Bush was probably going to be able to shrug off the wimp factor stuff. But a lot of other things went wrong. Some of them could have been avoided. Some of them not. The one everybody seems to pounce on, including you, uh, is the famous tank incident. So for people who don't remember this, and I can't imagine at this point who that would be, but just for that lone stray person out there who's going, tank, Dukakis, what? What are you talking about? Uh, Josh King, uh, tell us, tell them what we're talking about. Yeah, Colin. So you're g- the governor to the north of Connecticut, Michael Dukakis of Massachusetts, uh, became the Democratic nominee in the spring of 1988, the presumptive nominee. And it it looked like his prospects were very good for election. He was, as you said, against a guy who had been portrayed in some ways unfairly as a wimp, uh, that picture in Newsweek taken in the back of his cigarette boat off Kennebunkport. But, uh, Dukak- but, but Bush had also been a young fighter pilot in World War II, plucked out of the sea by the USS Finback, director of the CIA, envoy to China. And when they looked at the polls, Dukakis versus Bush, who could be a more credible commander-in-chief? Well, I think the the numbers were four to one in favor of Bush in terms of people thinking that uh, Bush fit that mold better than Dukakis. So through the spring and summer, they started to do things that tried to cast Governor Dukakis as a commander-in-chief. He went to his old uh, barracks at Fort Dix, New Jersey, because he had served two years in the military in the army coming out of Swarthmore, was in Korea during the armistice. Uh, but still, they, th- there was this gnawing polling factor. He was much more relatable, much more uh, – his polling numbers were pretty even on cares about people like us. But could he be given the keys to the U.S. arsenal? So they looked at the state where they needed to win the most. It was Michigan, 20 electoral votes at stake, the home of the Reagan Democrats in Macomb County. And they looked at a place called General Dynamics Land Systems where they assembled the M1A1 Abrams main battle tank. And they said, let's put Governor Dukakis in the tank for a full speed ride. A mutual friend of Ed and mine, Matt Bennett, was sent out to do that trip. And Matt had major misgivings about this, tried to get back, tried to get the word back to Boston as much as he could that he thought this event was going to be a disaster. But nevertheless, they they stormed ahead. And on September 13th, 1988, Dukakis with Gordon England of General Dynamics gets in the tank for a full 45 mile an hour ride over this proving ground. Now, to go that fast, General Dynamics insisted that Governor Dukakis wear a helmet, both for protection because his torso was outside of the tank and also so he could hear Gordon England, the future secretary of the Navy, tell them about all the tank's characteristics. But the tank does a maneuver around this proving ground that wasn't planned, goes very close to the press riser, close enough to see the white of Governor Dukakis's teeth. That's what I call the money shot. A guy in Washington, D.C. named Sig Rogish, head of advertising for Bush Quail, sees this on Sam Donaldson's report that night and said, aha, I've got an idea. And five weeks later, it was a long time, Colin, uh, debuts the tank ad on the third game of the World Series between the Dodgers and the A's. And for the rest of the campaign, this event that might have been forgotten after a few days dogs Dukakis until the very last votes are cast on Election Day. 
Yeah, so he has this hat. He looks like Rocky the Flying Squirrel or Snoopy uh, fighting the Red Baron, uh, depending on which uh, cartoon reference you like the best. But, you know, Ed Emerson, I just want to come back to Josh's point, which is that, you know, this might have been a, tra- a, a tank that drove through the forest and nobody heard it or saw it, except that it got turned into a campaign ad. It, w- it wasn't necessarily front of mind just because it happened. Uh, so, But now the question that you in the field have to ask or perhaps just answer is, could this be preserved in some way? I mean, you know, in 1988, I'm sure all kinds of crazy things happened to George H.W. Bush and to Michael Dukakis. Only a small percentage of them were caught on film. Uh, Only a small percentage of those got turned into campaign commercials. Now anything can be spotted at any moment and just shoved up onto YouTube or God knows where else. I mean, you must have a a lot of stomach churn just thinking about that. Well, the... The tank shot, just for instance, the, uh, Josh and I worked on a trip to President uh, Clinton took to Kuwait some years later, and there was a discussion about putting him on a tank. And context uh, means a lot in this particular case. Uh, we were able to uh, engage President Clinton on top of an M1A1 tank with the tank crew that had been in combat. I mean, there was context, and the picture ran on a lot of the wires and uh, uh, around the world. Uh, what we do now, what we try to do every day when we get up is to avoid those tank shots. I mean, we used to certainly think about it, uh, putting on hats, uh, putting on uh, John Kerry. Uh, uh, Josh has this uh, John Kerry in the uh, clean suit uh, uh, looking like something out of a movie. Um, there are moments in every event where someone hands you a hat or where someone hands you a, uh, a book or a, a poster or something that when uh, deconstructed is going <laughs> to, you know, give you a bad 24 hour news cycle. And so what you try to do, uh, honestly, what, what good advance is, is try to reduce some of the spontaneity. You want to organically construct an event, you know, where you don't put in anything artificial, but at the same time you want to work against, uh, having sort of the unusual or the uh, exotic, if you will, insert itself into your photo. You know, Patty, sometimes I think these things, whether it's this or the Dean scream, they become placeholders uh, and they loom maybe a little bit larger than they deserve to. They become placeholder for a, a bigger thicket of problems, right? That wasn't Dukakis's problem wasn't that he rode in a tank. It was that he couldn't answer the question from Bernard Shaw about what would he do if his wife were raped and or killed. Uh, he uh, got bogged down in a multiple, multiple day debate about the Pledge of Allegiance, as if that were the most important uh, issue facing the country. By the time he'd sorted out the Pledge of Allegiance, George Bush was sealing around in Boston Harbor, claiming the environment as his issue and claiming that Dukakis hadn't cleaned up the harbor. I mean, I could list three or four other huge problems that Dukakis had as a candidate. Um, it, it wasn't that he rode around in a tank. In some ways, it was that the tank and the hat started to symbolize something bigger than that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, you know, this stuff doesn't usually stick unless there's something for it to stick to. I mean, it, you know, you, unfortunately, you have things like, you know, Carrie and the Swift Boat stuff that, that, that a narrative stuck uh, that wasn't an accurate uh, narrative, but it stuck because there were enough other facts in there that it could stick to. Um, and I think... Um, you know, that's the uh, unfortunately for the opposition, that's what you look for. I mean, mm-hmm. you look for that little wedge that's going to grab at something that that will stick. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, Josh, you know, I mean, it is sometimes you can sort of see how mistakes get made, right? There, there's somebody uh, on the John Kerry 2004 campaign who thought, well, you know, he's a really athletic guy. You know, he's not this stiff guy who, you know, can can barely incline his head in any direction the way he's being portrayed. He's an athletic, fun, exciting, sportsy, outdoorsy guy. He windsurfs. Like, what could be more athletic than that? So uh, suddenly there's a picture. I don't know whether that was like, you know, a stage managed picture or footage or not. I'm guessing it probably was. And somebody thought, yeah, that's a great look for him. And and you can sort of see how you wake up the next morning and go, oh, maybe not such a great look for him. Well, actually, Colin, to the contrary, <laughs> no one wanted that picture to happen okay. except Senator John Kerry. Ah. Uh, another another mutual friend of Ed and mine is a guy named David Morehouse. And that and in that cycle, David uh, was a, an advanced guy, but he also served as director of communications for the Kerry campaign. And that was a weekend when the Republicans were in New York City having their convention at Madison Square Garden. And typically, the opponent tries to lie low, to, to not stick his, his or her head up, to let the other side have their day. Kerry said, look, he said to an aide, I have this new windsurfer, a new sail. I just want to check it out. Nobody's going to watch me. This little part of Nantucket, of Nantucket Sound off of Brant Point, it's, private. it's a private area. I won't be seen. And Morehouse goes up to Senator Kerry and says, sir, you know, windsurfing is not really what plumbers and electricians do. And Kerry says, are you kidding, David? Here in Nantucket, plumbers and electricians windsurf all the time. And David rejoined him and said, yeah, but not in Ohio, Senator Kerry. And so Kerry goes out into the water, and there's a, a press pool on a boat filming another uh, piece of uh, – filming an, another thing. And this uh, footage gets on the air. And in New York, Mark McKinnon, who is media advisor to the Bush campaign, sees it and says, you know what? This fits perfectly with that thing Kerry said back in March – I voted for the war before I voted against it in Huntington, West Virginia. And if we can just reverse back and forth this windsurfer footage and, oh, by the way, put it to the Johann Strauss's Blue Danube Waltz, we'll make him look like a flip-flopper and a European candidate and a guy who windsurfs in expensive board shorts and sunglasses. And that's the rest of the story. All right, let's take a quick break here. We'll have more about political stagecraft, uh, about the work of advanced teams, all that stuff after this. So oh, we're back. We're talking about political campaigns and about styles of governance, uh, but not about the words that are spoken. It's a sort of everything but the words. Uh, you know, we, there are all these studies indicating how much of our impressions are shaped very, very quickly by visual content. Uh, and it's a lot. And so it's very important that the visual content, the optics, as they're called, uh, are done right. So we're talking to the people whose job in the past and present has been to do it right. Josh King, a former White House director of production for presidential events and the author, New of Off Script, an advanced man's guide to White House stagecraft's 
campaign spectacle and political suicide. Patty McQueen's in the studio. She's a communication strategist, founder of Patty McQueen Communication Strategies, and she worked on the 92 and 96 presidential campaigns and inaugurations and as a consultant to the 2000 presidential campaign. Out in the road and in the field is Ed Emerson. He's Democratic political strategist and lead advance man for Hillary for America. So uh, already, although the nominations haven't really been set up, there's a lot of back and forth between the two presumptive nominees, including the presumptive nominee, Donald Trump, who calls himself that, which I feel that you you shouldn't be able to call yourself the presumptive nominee. It's like Jesse James calling himself a desperado. You should let somebody else do that. But anyway, let's uh, let's hear a little clip of uh, it wasn't a direct back and forth between them. But let's hear them talking about each other. Donald Trump, finally a candidate whose hair gets more attention than mine. Well, I think the only card she has is the woman's card. She's got nothing else going. And frankly, if Hillary Clinton were a man, I don't think she'd get 5% of the vote. Okay, we could do a whole uh, show about those two exchangers or that exchange between the two of them. But I want to start, um, uh, Ed, with the, the first thing that she says, because... I, I think almost everybody here, maybe everybody here, would agree that, in, I mean, there's, there are all kinds of optics, but the very beginning, the very first optic is what a candidate, him or, her, or herself, looks like. Uh, then there's all this stuff, all the stagecraft, the trappings that go around that. And, and I'm assuming we all agree that women are held to some kind of other standard, that, that in fact, um, Hillary Clinton's entire career starting in the early 1990s uh, has included a, an obsessive focus on what she looks like, how she's dressed, what her hair's like, maybe to a point where we've exhausted ourselves. I, I don't know. I, I don't hear about it as much anymore. Or maybe you guys have just figured out how to solve the problem so that it's it's neutral. Well, the, back in the halcyon days of uh, the Internet, uh, 92, 93, when we first got to the White House, the, one of the first web pages I remember looking at was called Hillary's Hair. And it was, uh, it was a, uh, uh, just a slideshow, a simple slideshow of like the half dozen or dozen or so different uh, hairstyles that she would wear. And the, the truth is that when you walk onto the stage – um, we are stylized in our perceptions of what that first image is. And so the thing that uh, Patty and Josh and I have worked on for years is that first impression. Um, and I understand um, the difficulties of making a positive first impression uh, better than most, I think, because it's what we're doing now. You have to walk into uh, a pocket. Uh, James Brown, uh, the great uh, blues singer and uh, uh, rock and roller, used to call it, his band used to call it putting together a pocket that he could walk into and begin to sing. And that's ostensibly uh, and primarily what you do on, on campaign advance, is you want to create a moment that Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders or whoever it is you're working for walks into that represents the the entire gestalt of where you are, the who, what, where, when, and why, the gorgeous ethnic mosaic that is uh, the voters of this country. And if you're in a uh, the Harley-Davidson plant in Milwaukee or if you're in the, the General Motors plant in Shreveport, Louisiana, something about their first steps in, uh, that first exposure when they hit the camera, uh, says auto plant or says motorcycle or says uh, senior care center. You know, something about that connects. And um, 
We don't do anything. I mean, uh, I'm just trying to think of uh, gender-specific stuff that we do, and um, I'm sort of uh, – I, I don't think there is. I think we we put her in situations where she is the commander-in-chief, and she is uh, uh, to be seen as such. Um, and I enjoy it. I, I love it. All right, so for the last three minutes, uh, Patty McQueen has been indicating by her body language there's something she wants to say about this. Well, what I was going to say is that I think I do think that we've moved from the web page about Hillary's hair, and I and I remember those years when, you know, early on when when there was lots of talk about did she have a headband and was it short and was it long and and uh, you know hair 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 whatever she else she was doing, um, but I'm not sure that we've changed enough to not be talking about the tone of her voice and and the woman's card. I mean, there's a reason that Donald Trump is saying that. He's saying it because it resonates. And I think um, I think that a lot of the, the particularly on social media, the pushback um, is still there. It's just different. And I'm not I'm not saying that there's I mean, I do think that it's moved. I think it's moved in the way that that it looks. So we're not going to be so crass as to talk about her hair or what she's wearing. But but we can talk about we can have this endless discussion about whether or not she's shouting. Um, I want to go to Josh King on this, but before I do, I want to say that Josh King uh, will be at the Mark Twain House uh, on Thursday, May 19th. You have to write that in your calendars. It's a ways off. 7 p.m. to talk about his book, the book that we're talking about right now, off script. Uh, The event is free, but you must register. Uh, You must call the Twain House or you must go online at marktwainhouse.org. You must prepare. You must do advance work if you want to get to see Josh King talking about doing advance work. Am I being clear about this? Do your advance work. Don't just uh, leave things to chance because we see how that happens. So, Josh King, an implicit point that you make in the book is that uh, at least in some ways, you know, it is a little easier for guys. Like the the big rule that uh, President Obama articulates uh, at this ceremony, this football ceremony where they've got this kind of custom made helmet for him. Uh, well, well, explain that. What, what does uh, President Obama say at that moment? Well, he's welcoming the Navy Academy midshipmen to the White House, to the East Room, to congratulate them on winning the Commander-in-Chief Trophy in 2013. It's whichever football team does the best against between Army, Navy, and Air Force. And as usual at these events, they offer the president, the Commander-in-Chief, a token of the winning campaign, and they give him a football helmet tricked out with his number 44 for his place in the numerical pantheon of U.S. leaders. And he looks it over, and you can hear through the microphone the midshipmen and the people in the audience in the East Room saying, put it on, put it on. And he keeps looking at it, and he says, well, let me, all give, let me give you a little lesson. I call it Politics 101. You never look good wearing something in your hat, on your head. Presidents shouldn't put something on their head. And, you know, I think what Patty said and what Ed said about Secretary Clinton's predicament is, is very tough. Um, But I don't think that Trump is picking on Secretary Clinton necessarily because she's a woman. He's trying to do what he did to Jeb Bush when he called him low-energy Jeb, what he's trying to do to Ted Cruz with Lion Ted, Marco Rubio, Little Marco. He's trying to brand his opponent in an effective way that gets – that breaks through uh, the the media ecosystem. And – when we when Patty talks about the tone of Hillary's voice, it's interesting. That clip that you played, her mocking Donald Trump a little bit for his hair, she's in a more conversational tone. 
And Secretary Clinton is in a tough spot because either she's at the podium and trying to project through a crowd and therefore elevating her voice in a way that Howard Dean did at the Dean's Scream, or she's speaking more conversationally. And she comes better off to a radio audience when it's conversational versus if Donald Trump is trying to play the women card, deal me in. And Donald is just trying to brand her at that point by saying uh, that she is shrill. And Ed and Patty might be difficult for them to say it, but that's what's going on. And in some ways, it's just the challenge that Secretary Clinton faces about, do I speak in a level monotone with a teleprompter and my text provided to me? And then Donald Trump is going to make fun of me for using the microphone. So she's really in a tough position when he gets when she gets the Donald Trump effect of being branded like her, like his Republican opponents were. And Um, and honestly, I think that it doesn't matter how she says it. I think that this is all about optics for Trump, too. So I'm not disagreeing with you, Josh. What I'm saying, I think, is that it's a it's you're right. He's he's just branding her. It doesn't matter if it's accurate. It's what he's going to say. And and unfortunately for, you know, America in 2016, um, that a woman shouting is a problem, you know, and coming from a state with John Larson and former Senator Chris Dodd, we know our shouters, but it's okay when they shout. It's just not okay when she does. Um, I want to just talk a little bit about what you guys do, because I I think uh, I don't want to lose track of that, too. One of the senses that I have is that particularly when you're in the stagecraft business, the advanced team business, there's something very unforgiving about this. You know, Mark uh, Gerson or whatever his name is can write a bad speech for George W. Bush in a clunky speech. Ah, Nobody's going to there's not going to be a guillotine waiting for him because the speech wasn't that great. But this this is a job where the risks and rewards are very intense. If things go wrong, it's not great. Um, I was uh, amused by the uh, on Veep. Uh, Tony Hill plays what uh, I think you guys call a body man. You know, the body man is the person who's walking right by the candidate all the time, taking stuff that people are trying to hand to the candidate, handing the candidate stuff that the candidate needs, noticing the spinach that the candidate the candidate has stuck in his or her teeth. And, and there's just this incredible sense of self sacrifice that Tony Hale portrays. Uh, although I don't think it's that far. I mean, I I know of at least one. Body man, I guess I can say who it was for, too, it was for Al Gore, who, when they arrived at some huge event and there were tuxedos there and Gore's tuxedo didn't fit, the body man just took his tuxedo off and put it on Al Gore because that's what you do, whatever the candidate needs. And, Ed, I do get the sense that, you know, out in the field like that, there's something very unforgiving about the environment that you guys work in. We just did an event uh, in Indiana that was uh, 21 hours notice. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is you hyper focus. You uh, and I've heard about this with uh, NFL quarterbacks. Uh, you hyper focus. Uh, you become aware of uh, uh, mold, you know, in the corner of the room that needs to be bleached out, you know, real quick. I mean, we built and produced a an event, a town hall rally, GOTV type event with a thousand people in 21 hours. And you can't, in that environment, in that crucible, uh, under this tremendous diamond-producing pressure, uh, you have to get everything right. You don't have the opportunity. So you have to front of the house. You have to make sure that the uh, magnetometers and the checkpoints are set up and that your staging people are in the front of the line and that uh, 
there is a check-in for the folks who are going to be, uh, you know, directed off to the side for a photo line with uh, uh, Mrs. Clinton. There is uh, the sound cues, the music cues, the lighting uh, that has to be general overall, nice wash on the stage. And then there are people on the uh, the, the crucial this is this will make Josh uh, squirm in his chair. The people behind the principal. Mm. That is the most difficult thing to fill uh, because that's your tight shot. Those people, uh, I had a, a guy in Charleston, West Virginia, uh, that I put back there who was one of the sound producers who was l- literally picking his teeth with an American flag. <laughs> and I, I had to go get him. You know, I was on national television sort of sidling down this huge row of people, and I just grabbed the flag out of his hand and just kind of give him a glare and work my way back out. But, you know, yeah, that, that event uh, put together in that short period of time uh, worked, and it all worked because you have this collection of, of advanced folks who were uh, hyper-focused. I guess that's the best way I'd put it. And so, yes, and obviously the the margin between failure uh, and victory can be rather slim. Josh, you tell a story in the book about being with President Clinton. I believe it's in Lyon uh, uh, in, in France, and you had what you thought was kind of a, a nice visual thing that you wanted to pull off. I'll let you pick off pick up the story from there. Yeah, Ed will remember this. Uh the thing that defined the way I approached my job at the White House was trying to push the envelope a little bit outside of the normal way of producing an event. And when President when President Obama, President Bush, President Clinton, one thing they do every June is they travel on a rotating basis to the site of the G7 summit to meet with the other leaders of the countries. And in June of 1996, it was France's turn in Lyon. And typically, the president will hold a news conference for the White House press corps after the summit has concluded, take any and all questions, both about the summit and about what's happening in domestic politics. And instead of going to the sort of antiseptic, nondescript, international press filing center that was set up for this purpose in Lyon, I argued to uh, Don Baer, the White House communications director, Paige Reef, a guy that both Ed and I reported to, the head of advance, I said, let's take President Clinton to the uh, botanical garden in Lyon and put him against this beautiful, serene pond. But what I didn't count on was the weather or the gnats. And what was going on was it was hot. It was June 28th or something like that, 90 degrees. The And what we do with these events is we set up movie lights trained at the podium to even out the shadows. So it must have been like 130 degrees right at the at the center of the presidential podium. And I noticed a swarm of gnats gathering. So I went into a local convenience store and I bought a can of some stuff. And I said, I thought it was sort of insect repellent. And I couldn't read the French label, but I sprayed the podium all over And what I learned later, because they don't teach French in advanced school, was that it was insecticide, insect killer. And because President Clinton was beginning to sweat profusely behind the podium answering these questions about uh, terrorism, about Filegate back in the States, his hands went from the podium, which he typically gripped, to rub the sweat off his brow. And the mixture of the poison from the podium and his hand and his sweat got into his eyes so that by the end of this news conference, the man's eyes were shut like Rocky Balboa after 15 rounds with Apollo Creed. He gets back to Air Force One. A call comes in from the White House from Chief of Staff Leon Panetta to Bear 
saying in a flat monotone, don't even bother to come home. And the similar message was transferred to me. That's what it, that's what I mean about this being a very, very unforgiving business when things go wrong. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. We just understood for the first time what uh, Bill Clinton and uh, former Yankees pitcher Java Chamberlain have in common. Uh, we'll uh, take a break. We'll learn so much more in our final segment. You know how it goes. Yeah, everyone knows. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Red, white, and blue bunting was hung by our interns, Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Dick Tuck. For show pages, articles, and photographs of the ceremonial signing of the Here and Now legislation, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, American politics have always been dark and stormy. And now... Back to Colin. Yeah, I should say, this is sort of all politics week on our show, although it was made a little bit complicated when Franklin Four was not able to be with us yesterday to talk about Paul Manafort. But we're still doing all politics all week. Tomorrow, uh, Gail Collins and historian Matt Warshower will be among the people talking about how American politics politics have always been rough and tumble and dark and stormy. It's not so much that this is the coarsest, most grossest, most awfulest campaign ever. We've had a lot of those in the past. And then on Thursday, we're working on a show. There's like an entirely different narrative that most public radio listeners never hear. It's the narrative on right-wing talk radio. So what's right-wing talk radio saying about all this stuff that we talk about in a different way? We want to uh, delve into that a little bit and find out. Uh, so anyway, it's a, it's a week of politics right now. We're talking about advance work uh, with Josh King. Uh, his book is Off Script, An Advanced Man's Guide to the White House Stagecraft, Campaign Spectacle and Political Suicide. Josh will be at the Mark Twain House on Thursday, May 19th at 7 p.m. Make plans, make a reservation, do your own advance work. Uh, Patty McQueen's here with us from Patty McQueen Communications Strategies at Emerson's out in the field, Democratic political strategist and lead advance man of Hillary for America. So, you know, one thing we haven't talked about here, I want to make sure we have some time to talk a little bit more about the game-changing nature of social media, but um, but I think also we have to mention the fact that it's not always, and Josh, I'll start with you, I don't really know what story this leads to, but uh, it's not always a one-way street in the sense that, you know, if you're uh, an advanced person for a political candidate, there may be some kind of counter plan against you. Um, Dick Tuck was the guy who really kind of almost invented this or perfected it as a strategist for, for Dick Nixon. Uh, other candidates would show up from the other side and Dick Tuck would have some nasty surprise waiting for them. And even if you're the president and it's not a campaign event, you don't know what Code Pink is going to do or, or, I mean, somebody may demonstrate, somebody might do uh, something. So, Josh, one of the things you have to do is plan your own thing, but I guess you have to be ready. You have to have your shields up in case something else happens. That's right. I mean, right now at this very moment, Ed Emerson is probably planning his anti-demonstrator uh, plan for the next rally. And it's got an, there's a, another term for it that has an expletive that I won't use. Yeah. But, uh, but, but any place in the crowd, from that backdrop area that Ed talked about to the middle of the crowd, you could have protesters either from either political extreme, for, for Secretary Clinton, either from the far left or from the far right. And so what you do is you usually have some sort of burly fellows uh, with signs and, and placards that will sort of surround any protester and probably try to bury them from the shot. Now, 
it's the the best defense against that is to just have a very nimble candidate up on the stump who can make a funny joke, who can let the people say their piece and to put them down and then sort of take the the crowd reaction that goes along with it to sort of quiet and muffle that protest. We've seen this cycle that it's sometimes very difficult to to quiet them and they can be really disruptive and you know I have a lot of views on that but I won't won't share them here other than I think candidates on both parties ought to be able to say their piece to their supporters when they gather in these places. Um, Patty, we know from uh, experience here in Connecticut, uh, I think in the most recent campaign, uh, Tom Foley had decided he was going to visit the town of Sprague and talk about some kind of factory that he felt had gotten lost there. And and word word of it got out. Somehow or other, the other side found out they had people there. They had people there to confront Foley. Foley didn't handle it well. He started blaming people for the loss of their own jobs. I mean, once again, I don't know if it was a Dukakis tank moment, but it was a moment in which he just thought he was going to be able to go in there and do his thing, and some other people got ahead of him. Right. Look, I think, you know, with every campaign, you know, you're looking at your own schedule and at their schedule, and you're always looking for ways to jump into somebody else's schedule and mess with them. I mean, that so, so, you know, while I, I feel for a candidate that's at an event with protesters, I also know, uh, maybe I haven't done the protest, but I've certainly jumped on other press risers at somebody else's event to immediately rebut whatever it is that their candidate has said. So, I mean, it's all is fair in in uh, in love and politics. So I think, uh, you know, the question is, what's the tone of it and how does it happen? I think the the concern, you know, I think that some of us have watching what's happening now is that some of this has gotten a little bit violent out in the in some of these protests at the Trump rallies. Ed, I wanted to leave a little time more time. We've alluded to social media already, but really, you know, in your business, in the past, yeah, you know, you could try to control as many things as possible. How your candidate looks, what she says, who's in the crowd, who's standing behind her, what's the French term for bug repellent. You know, you try to find out as many things as you can and nail them all down in place. And one of the then there's a whole other operation that's working with the press, and there are presumably people who know how to handle the press, how to talk to the press, how to direct the press's attention where you hope it will go. But really, there's this huge X factor now. There's people that you will never meet and you can't control. And they're on Twitter and they're on Facebook and they're just doing stuff and saying stuff. And is is a professional's response a kind of helpless agnosticism? Like, I just don't know what's going on in social media. Or are you guys in some way trying to throw a lasso around that? Well, get in front of it. That's the, I think Patty would, and Josh would both uh, sort of say, you, you want to, social media is just another way to uh, communicate a message. If there is something in uh, the visual aspect in advanced work called the continuity of the visual, which is you try to use the same font on posters and in your uh, press releases, and then you try to use colors. You try to use certain things that that when you see uh, at a glance on television or if you're driving or if you're uh uh, someplace in a in a grocery store, and you see an article in the newspaper, something that says, "Oh, that's Hillary Clinton. Um, that's the Clinton campaign." The social media has just sort of broadened the uh, the, the 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 size of the uh, the task. I mean, you really have to uh, um, uh, be aware, and you have to have very specific people uh, doing Instagram, doing Flickr. Uh, there are visual people. There are people that have to watch Facebook. There are people that uh, uh, folks and um, you know that have to follow Twitter and be prepared to uh, you know send out tweets uh, 
uh, almost immediately. We have revolutionized, uh, uh, going back a few years to uh, President Obama's campaign, the crowd building uh, apparatus for uh, for big events. You now you post a link, uh, you hit hot email lists that you have, and others, uh, uh, ABC, CBS, uh, uh, local newspapers will reprint the link for you, and then people go to the link, sign up for the event, and that's how you do your crowd count. That's your hard count. Uh, back in the '88 campaign for uh, uh, Paul Simon and uh, Dukakis. Uh, you literally had to, you had phone banks. You had, you put up a hundred phones. That was a great night. If you could get a, a union or someplace to put up a hundred phones, you'd make calls, you'd get a person's name, and then you would put them on a list. And that was your hard count. There is a detachment now with social media that is electronic. Uh, and it's a little unnerving sometimes, you know, what's the, what's the flake rate? You know, is it 10% in this town or 15 or 20%? If we have a thousand RSVPs, are we going to get 500 people, which we need to uh, appropriately fill the venue? Yeah, actually, when uh, Donald Trump first appeared in Hartford, uh, his venue was too big. The whole back of the hall looked very, very empty. The next time he appeared anywhere, it was in a high school gymnasium where there were there was just like, um, you know, not enough room for everybody. Hey, Josh, we've got about 30 seconds left. Um, one thing I, I do think is that Ed clearly is made out of titanium, you know, that he can do this. My sense of this advance work is it's kind of a young person's game for the most part. Just the energy that takes the physical beat, beating on your body uh, of, of getting there and solving all these problems. Um, my sense is, you know, you want to eventually maybe get out of that and then you can come back in 30 years and be Warren Christopher or, or Jim Baker and oversee the Florida count. Yeah, Ed Ed is what's called in the business a dinosaur, along <laughs> with uh, others, classics like uh, Mort sure Engelberg. And, uh, but, but no, but Ed has, Ed has a lot of dings on his body to prove uh, his medal going back to 84 and 88. And, and I have huge respect for him. And I could just try and chronicle through the book, you know, some of the work of these dinosaurs through the ages on both parties. But, right. uh, you but know what? to we're... see Ed still across the hustings, it's amazing. We're going to have to wrap up here. That's Josh King, uh, Patty McQueen, and Ed Emerson. Thanks to all three of you. And thanks to Bitsy Kaplan. As we gather to celebrate just how accomplished this mission is. Madam President, accomplished? We're in the thick of the war right now. Those are celebratory explosions, Secret Agent Hill. They just bombed a shelter. That wasn't a bomb, that was the ticker tape cannon. You know who really bombed today? The U.S. Ticker Tape Committee. All I'm seeing is smoke. 